Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, my name is Stuart Miles, and welcome to the Pocket Podcast. This week, we've seen the launch of the new Samsung Galaxy S20 range and the Samsung Galaxy Z Flip, the company's second foldable phone. The new flagship models promise a bevy of high-end tech to those keen to lap it up, and Pocket editor Chris Hall joins me to discuss all the announcements and later on give me his verdict on whether you should consider getting them. And away from Samsung, I recently chatted to orchestrator and composer Jonathan Beard about his latest project, Heaven Quest, A Pilgrim's Progress. Beard has worked on plenty of shows you've probably watched, including The Mandalorian, The Walking Dead, The Handmaid's Tale, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and Dexter, amongst others, and has witnessed firsthand how technology has changed the film music business over the last 20 years. But first, back to you, Chris. Tell us more about Samsung. Well, Samsung announced no less than four new phones. That is the Galaxy Z Flip, its its folding phone, second generation folding phone, alongside three models in a new Galaxy S20 series. And the S20 series, if you're confused, is the one that comes after the S10. I think they just wanted to take advantage of the fact that it was 2020 and having 20 seemed to fit in quite well. Now, the S20 range are going to be the big sellers of the family, and it's going to come in three different sizes. So there's the standard S20, the S20 Plus, and then at the top of the pile, there's something called the S20 Ultra. Now, if you're a Samsung fan, you'll probably know that last year there was an S10 5G, which was kind of like a super phone. One of the first ones to come out with 5G, pack crammed in a load of specs. And that's really what the Ultra is. It's a replacement for the 5G. The difference in the story here is all of the S20 devices will support 5G. And if, if you're in the UK and you want to get a 4G phone, your only option is going to be to buy the S20. They'll all support 4G anyway. The idea here is that you're 5G ready, you're ready for the future, and you can basically tackle anything that the world throws at you. The popular one is probably just going to be the regular S20, I presume. So do who is this Ultra for? Well, the Ultra seems to be Samsung playing the big specs game. It looks like it wants to take down all of the Chinese companies that have been stealing market share in the past few years. It wants to tackle Huawei head-on. It wants to have the most megapixels. It wants to have the most RAM, etc., etc. It's just pouring everything you can think of into this phone using a mantra that the bigger the number, the better it's going to be. Whether that's true or not is another question. Now, we've seen this in the camera industry a number of years ago. You and I both covered this for a long time in that sense of it just it was like a megapixel rush, wasn't it? It was just keep on putting more megapixels in because a bigger number means more sales because consumers who aren't educated think, okay, that's great. It's got a bigger number. It must be better. Do we see that here with this or is do you think there is actually some of this stuff is worth having? Well, I... I personally think that some of this is the megapixel race so in the s20 ultra you have a massive number of megapixels across all of the cameras that it offers the main camera is 108 megapixels 108 Oof. megapixels but what they're doing here is they're not expecting you to shoot at 108 megapixels because if you did you'd end up with a huge picture it'd be a sort of 
I don't know. It would be well, those gigapixel pictures. Yeah, something. it would be enormous. So what they're doing is they're combining all of the pixels so that you end up with a 12 megapixel photo at the end of it. Now you may say, well, what's the point? Why not just have a 12 megapixel camera? One of the things that they're doing is that they're giving themselves more resolution to be able to to change the way that they use the sensor. So it can also support 8K video capture, for example, and which is another thing is like, does anybody have an 8K TV at the moment? Uh, how are you going to watch this stuff back? Because you don't have an 8K display. So a lot of this is gunning for the future. You can upload 8K content onto YouTube as it happens. And with Samsung trying to sell you 8K TVs, you can kind of see how the creation story has started here. But yeah, I mean, elsewhere, there is another big number because they have a 48 megapixel zoom camera that is trying to offer you 100 times digital zoom. Wow, you've got to have some steady hands on that, surely. Yeah, so I tried this out on a tripod. So it was mounted on a tripod. I zoomed out to 100 times and I had to, I literally had to stand there for about 30 seconds to wait for the vibrations to stop. And I have no idea where the vibrations were coming from. I mean, all I did was tap on the screen to jump out to a hundred times zoom and it was still bouncing around on the tripod. The thing is when you're zooming that far, the slightest movement of your hand is a massive swing of the camera view at the other end of that. And to be honest, from what I saw, you may not be really that excited about the results when you zoom out to 100 times anyway but you do get options to go all the way up to 100 times so 30 times zoom that might be fun that might be fine that might give you a good photo but there's definitely a lot to test here and i would just say urge some caution and say don't just say because it has 100 times zoom it's going to be the best zoom on the market you really need to know what the performance is like before making any decisions like that and making a decision when are, when are we expected to see these well, these uh, these are now all available for pre-order. And if you're interested in the Z Flip, which is the folding phone, it's going to be available today. Uh, the other models are going to be available on the 14th of March. So there is a little bit of time, but they will probably be arriving on the market before most of, most of Samsung's competitors have managed to launch their phones. Still to come, Chris gives us his verdict on the Samsung Galaxy Z Flip. And one of the things that Samsung has used this time is what they're calling ultra-thin flexible glass. Now, I I did not know that glass was flexible. Uh, I don't know what sort of magic this is. But I think the takeaway point is that it's, it's going to be slightly more substantial than the plastic coatings that have been on these folding displays so far. Jonathan Beard's IMDb page is like a who's who of TV shows, films and games from the last 20 years. Primarily an orchestrator, his job involves assigning instruments from an orchestra or other musical ensemble to a piece of music written by a composer. Put simply, he brings the notes on the page to life for us to enjoy. In Beard's own words, his job is akin to an engineer working with an architect, allowing the architect's vision to become a reality. And keen to become the architect himself, Beard's latest project is as the composer for HeavenQuest, A Pilgrim's Progress. And here's a little flavour of his music from the film.
So how has technology changed the industry? Will people like him be replaced by AI? And do you have to account for the way we watch television today in a variety of different environments when you make the music? I began by asking him what his biggest challenges are when starting a new project. If if it's uh, working as a composer, so with, with my career, it sort of gets split, kind of my portfolio gets split half and half kind of between composing and orchestration. But then within composing as well, I'm sort of split between writing concert music, so music for ensembles that are going to be performed out in the world, and then music for media projects. And when in that situation of starting to compose a new score, I think the single biggest challenge is looking at that screen, because I'm usually writing on a digital device of some sort, and seeing that screen be completely empty. That is the mm. scariest moment of starting a project. And once you just kind of dive in and start to either get notes on that digital page or record melodies into that digital software sequencer, it starts to flow. But uh, you know, I've, I've been in this business for, for more than a decade and my heart still jumps up into my throat that first day anytime I'm starting something new and looking at that empty screen for the first time. And so when you start with that process, do you do you just, is it literally a blank, a blank page? As you say, it's not that you've got like, oh, I've got some pre-recorded stuff that I can just sort of merge in here and add a bit of stuff that I've done previously and, and go from there. Or is it, you know, a fresh, completely fresh start every time? It's pretty fresh. The sort of the pre-production that can be done is is mainly that I will create a new template sort of for any new project I'm doing. And this is pretty much across genres and and across um, sort of mediums of music. Uh, if it's if it's for a if it's for a film or a game or a TV show, I'm always always I'm almost always starting in a digital sequencer and I will have built a template of sounds that I think will work well for that project. I'll have done that in advance. So the screen will be blank in terms of created work, but I'll have a bunch of loaded tracks ready to go with types of instruments, either electronic instruments that I've created from scratch or sampled instruments that are eventually going to be replaced by live musicians. I'll have those loaded in and ready to go. Right. And that way, at least I can, um, I, I have sort of a sound world that I'm ready to jump into even if the actual music has not been started yet. So that's, that's the kind of pre-production I can do. The, the, the version of that, in if I'm writing um, you know, sort of on a digital page, if I'm writing in sheet music, the version of that is trying to figure out my ensemble size in advance and get uh, music staves loaded up for each of those uh, instruments or instrument groups in advance. And beyond that, you just kind of have to dive in. That's that's what you can do up front, and then you just get going. Yeah, has the technology that you used across those across those times? You know, Dexter was a long time ago now. Right. Has that have has it changed considerably how you go about producing music or making music or the demands on on what the the sort of director or the producer wants from you? Sure. So, in terms of the way that music is produced for for film and tv 
I think that innovation is always going on, but you sort of get some seismic moments of innovation that, that happen less often. And I think kind of the biggest seismic shifts uh, sort of that we are grappling with in our modern world probably were happening in the mid-1990s, I'd say. Mm-hmm. And from then on, there's been this consistent refining and um, sort of updating, upgrading that experience of how composers write. And in the case of those shows that you just mentioned, I served as an orchestrator on each of those shows, uh, with the exception of Dexter, where I was doing some score production. And the, uh, the technology for orchestration has definitely shifted, but we've been working in digital notation softwares now uh, since the entire time that I've been uh, in the business. So the, the shift from kind of handwritten music scores uh, over into digital scores was happening in the 1990s. And that's obviously been a huge innovation for the industry. It makes mm. our uh, job faster, which is very important with modern deadlines. I suppose it must make no- sharing notes and sharing music a lot easier as well. Yes. Yeah. And it allows a composer to preview my work as an orchestrator. So if I'm, if I'm working with another composer as their orchestrator, it allows them to see much more easily in advance um, what their score is going to look like. And we can go over notes and ideas of something that a, a composer may want me to approach slightly differently than I've done in my orchestration. And that can all be um, passed back and forth digitally, which is obviously a huge uh, convenience and benefit. And so I know Tish, you, you, you talk about this sort of differentiator between you working as an orchestrator and also composing your own scores. What kind of software do you use on a day-to-day basis to get your job done? Right. So my studio is based around, uh, primarily I'm a, I'm a Macintosh guy. Um, and and my, my primary studio is based around a system of a couple of... Uh, Mac Pro computers that are linked together via Ethernet and allow me to run both the creation softwares, so a sequencer like Pro Tools or Logic or Cubase, those are some of the the, the sequencer brands that are out there, and then also music notation softwares such as Sibelius or Dorico. Uh, all of those basically can run on a main computer system, and then I can also have a bunch of sound libraries loaded on satellite computers uh, that right. allow me to have a vast uh, amount of sampled instrument sounds uh, sort of at my fingertips all the time. And that's really, really uh, crucial in creating good demos of cues that you're composing uh, so that a director can hear what a piece you're writing for them is is sort of going to sound like in advance. The The other technological breakthrough that's been fantastic is we're getting to a point now where you can basically have a scaled down but still fully professional writing studio uh, essentially on uh, portable devices. So a couple of years ago... Uh, inspired actually by uh, uh, fellow composer Jeff Beale, uh, who was the first person to really document doing this. 
I started to build a scaled down version of my writing studio that I could put in a suitcase uh, right. and, and basically take with me anywhere as carry on. I'd, I'd never check it on a plane, but I could carry it on. And for the last film that I uh, composed that's just coming out now called Heaven Quest, that actually became really crucial because I was writing portions of that score in four different states. I had a, a number of different trips I had to take during that score writing process. And that mobile suitcase uh, writing rig uh, went with me all over the U.S. And a bunch of that music got composed outside of my primary studio. So that's been a really nice uh, development as well. Did you write the music before you saw the shots or, or do you write them after you've seen the shots? Or even if you're on the go, do you do you kind of, you're on set and you think, oh, okay, this this tune would really work well or this piece of music would work well here because I've, I've seen it and I'm there in the environment. It, it's interesting. All of those things that you've described have happened uh, in my workflow at one point or another. I think the most standard way is... I will have the video footage with me as I'm composing. And originally I had an extra laptop that I'd travel with when I was doing the travel rig thing. I'd have an extra laptop that I'd travel with just to run video. And then the sort of main laptops were getting fast enough that I realized I almost didn't need that, that, that dedicated uh, video laptop anymore. Right. And so that, that sort of, you know, looking at picture while composing on a, a rig that's based around a couple of laptops is functionally pretty similar to how I'd be writing in my regular studio. Uh, but there have also definitely been times I love to always come on to projects as early as possible and preferably if I can get hired before they've even shot the film, that's mm. amazing right. because then I can usually spend some time on the set and sort of uh, absorb some of the feel of the, the the kind of vibe of the movie as it's actually shooting. And there have been there have been some occasions where that has happened, where I've been on set for a film and ended up going and on a mobile you know a mobile setup of some sort, writing music inspired by what I had experienced that day, just as kind of rough drafts. To, to potentially use later as themes. Sure. And some of those themes have gotten into the film. So obviously those were written without seeing the footage. It was more just that I was seeing portions of the actual performance that was being captured uh, for later footage. And so, so all of those things are possible with, with, the, with the mobile rig. With different devices now, you know, so let's take the Mandalorian, for example you're never going to see that at the cinema or unlikely to see that at the cinema unless there's some special showing. You might be watching that on a on an iPhone. You might be watching an iPad, a Samsung device, a TV, a home projector system. Does that change the way that you think about writing music? Or do you just go, we're just going to make this for the biggest soundstage possible in the hope, you know, make it as amazing as possible and the device has to bend to you? Or do you find that you're kind of composing or orchestrating music that is bending to the devices? So in terms of the composing for Mandalorian, I think that would be a, a question for Ludwig Göransson, the, the, who, who composed the brilliant score for that show. Uh, being in the orchestration space for that show, for example, mm. what, 
what we were doing in the orchestral sessions for that show was as big and sort of large in scale as you'd see for a Star Wars film. Um, I think that is safe to say. Giant orchestra, lots of amazing sounds. Ludwig also designed a bunch of uh, sort of altered sounds himself. And uh, there was nothing scaled down about the music based on the likelihood that many people would be watching it on smaller portable devices. I think that one of the sort of interesting developments, and I know that's kind of a wishy-washy word, (laughs) but it is actually sort of, I think, a mixed blessing, is as theatrical experiences, as sort of big screen experiences maybe lessen a little bit in big theaters, uh, the home theaters that people are watching on, so those smart TVs with these amazing home sound systems, those are getting bigger and bigger. And so people are, even when they're in their home, often watching on really big screens with really good sound. And so a TV show being created for a streaming service almost still needs to have that like amazing production quality that it would have if it were a theatrical film, because it's going to be still watched in some pretty high definition environments, both in sound and in picture. I know you've worked on video games as well. Is is that as enjoyable as working on films? Is that is that a very different process? Uh, it's a little bit different, and it's a lot the same. So I, the short answer is I love working on video games. One of the composing thrills of my life was when my dear friend Gordy Hobb uh, invited me to compose some additional music for a couple of the Star Wars video games that he was the lead composer for. And the experience essentially video games are pushing to in general make their their music more innovative and bigger uh sort of all the time and we're seeing more and more video games scored with huge orchestras which is really fun uh a a lot of resources allocated to sound in games and uh and that's exciting so it's getting closer in a certain way to the cinematic experience What's different, of course, is that the sort of narrative, the, the, the linear narrative of a video game might not be as locked as it would be for a TV show or, or for a film. And so you sometimes have to compose music that can work in certain ways uh, that adjusts, essentially, even if the player that's playing the game makes a different choice, goes in a different direction, decides to spend some time in a certain environment before leaving. And so there are some fun technological aspects there that play into composing choices of how the music can work. Um, But fundamentally, it is when it comes to actually composing for it, uh, it's a pretty similar process. If I'm if I'm writing music for Gordy's score on Star Wars or if I'm composing for Heaven Quest, in the end, I'm creating music that the given tableau in that uh, you know, in, in that uh, sure. film or show needs or in that game. And I'm, I'm being inspired by the scene that's, that I'm either watching or that's being described to me and then trying to execute music that, that sort of speaks to that scene in an appropriate emotional way. So that part of the process really doesn't change from sort of medium to medium uh, in terms of games to TV to film. 
where do you see all this going in the future in your industry? Is it sort of more of the same? Do you think technology will be able to help? You know, you talk to some composers or, or orchestras or, you know, music guys and they're like, well, now we can have like 500 tracks laying at sure. once because the computer allows us to do that when we couldn't before. Where do you see in five years time? Do you see your job being fairly similar to today or do you think there'll be bigger sort of technological advances that will make just things completely different? It will be interesting to see. And the short answer is, I don't know. <laughs> I have some suspicions. <laughs> I, I think that we are going to see consistent innovation in um, dealing with certain elements of tediousness in the job. I think that um, there is constant innovation going on to try and make the barriers from one step to the next step become less and less. I think that the creative choices, sort of how a piece of music is composed or how a piece of music is arranged and then orchestrated, uh, I think those creative choices are going to continue to be creative choices. Uh, but there are certain inconveniences that I think are going to get smaller and smaller in terms of how things are actually executed. I hope I'm right when I say that live musicians aren't going away anytime soon. Uh, there's been lots and lots of innovation in sort of sampling technology that makes it possible to create sort of in-the-box digital versions of music that is meant to sound relatively acoustic. Uh, I think that will also continue, but there is nothing that quite replaces the heart and the intention behind a live performance. And so one of my favorite things in my job, even though I'm also an electronic musician, uh, one of my favorite things is when I get to collaborate with live performers. And I have a feeling that there will continue to be a demand for that. How we prepare for that, how we deliver the music that has been recorded, how we mix, how I orchestrate, and even how I compose, it certainly is going to be affected by the technological uh, revolutions that are likely just around the corner to break down more of those barriers. I think that's that's the main place I see things going and it's uh, it's likely to be an exciting ride. And do you think AI will eventually kind of help you write the music as well? Uh, it'll be interesting to see. I think AI is already here in terms of music creativity. There are some softwares that are already being developed um, that I don't have a particularly large amount of experience with, but, but, but they're certainly there. And uh, that's only going to continue to accelerate. So, so I believe that AI's role in music creation is inevitable. I think it's already here. And to what degree it sort of melds with the standard creative process that most composers have now, I think that's still to be seen. There, there are some different imaginative ways that it could go. Um, but I hope, I, I certainly uh, hold positive hope that the contributions AI makes to music creativity will be additive. And I hope we are not looking at a future world where robots are uh, composing all the things we listen to. Um, because I think that, that human heart is uh, just a huge component 
to what goes into musical creativity. So I hope to see it develop as, as a, uh, a collaborative tool, essentially. Uh, but it is certainly, it is certainly coming. Foldable phones have gone from concept to reality within a year and Samsung is leading the charge with the launch of its second mobile phone with a foldable display, the Samsung Galaxy Z Flip. Available from today and just ahead of the global rollout of the new Motorola Razr, which also is a foldable clamshell, Chris Hall has of course played with both and is here to give his verdict on whether it's a technology that's here to say. So Chris, is it any good? I think the Galaxy Z Flip is an important phone because it's one of those devices that's taking us beyond the candy bar style that we've become so used to. For the past 10 years, pretty much every phone, whether it's an iPhone or a Samsung phone or a Huawei phone or anybody else's phone, it's basically been the same, a kind of bar with a screen on the front and some cameras on the back. Folding phones are changing things. They, they may be the most exciting thing that's happening in the smartphone industry at the moment because they are radically changing the design and the form that these things come on. So at the moment, there aren't very many of them around. There's a Samsung Galaxy Fold, which came out last year, which I played with quite a lot and I thought was very, very good, but obviously it's a first-generation product. Then there was the Motorola Razr, which was again announced last year and is only just coming on sale, so it's taken quite long to arrive. And unfortunately for Motorola, the Samsung Galaxy Z Flip is almost exactly the same size as the Razer, designed to fill exactly the same space. It's more powerful and it's cheaper. And that's kind of a magic oh, wow. combination, really. So uh, Motorola are using the retro Razer styling, which may do may win them some fans. But Samsung is just pouring all of its experience into the Z Flip, which I think is how it managed to get to this position where it's technically better and more affordable. So the first thing that everybody will ask about is the display. Obviously, it's a folding display. And one of the things that Samsung has used this time is what they're calling ultra-thin flexible glass. Now, I, I did not know that glass was flexible. Uh, I don't know what sort of magic this is, um, but I think the takeaway point is that it's it's going to be slightly more substantial than the plastic coatings that have been on these folding displays so far. When I was talking to the Samsung people at the launch event at the uh, the Samsung venue in Kings Cross, they said that it should be better resisting some of the little scratches that might come along if you get something on your hand or something. You know, anything touches the display, it's less likely to leave a mark, and that's a great thing. There is still a slight undulation in the display around the point that it folds. And some people will say, oh, I, it, it has to be absolutely perfect. Why is this happening? But from my perspective, from my experience using the Galaxy Fold last year, a slight undulation in the display really doesn't make any difference. I've watched movies on these things where there's been a ripple in the display and you don't even notice it. You'll only see it if you're holding your phone at a particular angle and the light catches it. And yes, you can feel where there is a change from one half of the phone to the other. But again, it's not an issue. And if people make an issue out of it, then I think they're barking up the wrong tree because you can't really have a folding phone without there being a fold. So I think the, the big question for me is this folding phone. Do you think people are going to get used to taking this device out of their pocket and then having to do something else with it? As I say, last 10 years, we've become so accustomed, last 13 years, in fact, so accustomed to clam um, into candy bar shaped phones that you just open it up look at it and it opens and you're in and off you're going does the does the fold does it need to be there 
Well, that's a that's an interesting question, really, because one of the things that you're doing, as you hint at there, by introducing a fold, you're introducing something else you have to do before you get access to your device. And we saw Apple slowly removing things, change the button to a fingerprint sensor, change the fingerprint sensor to a face ID system so that it all becomes completely seamless. And that's the same sort of logic that people take on on websites and apps, trying to reduce the barriers and reduce the clicks and reduce the navigation. As soon as you have a mechanically folding phone, you're introducing a new barrier to getting the display on and getting to the information or whatever it is that you want. At the same time, the advantage is that people have been criticizing phones for getting too big, about not being able to fit them in a pocket or a bag and all those sorts of things. And this effectively means that you can have that big, glorious display, fold it in half, slip it in your pocket, and away you go. At the moment, it is very much being pitched as a fashion thing. And that was very obvious from what Samsung was talking about. They want to get this into the hands of of trend-setting people and make sure that everybody sees this as a cool thing. And I think because this is a brand new technology, I think it is a cool thing, but there will always be these practical considerations. Like if you're holding it in landscape and you're playing games, are you going to shut it on your thumbs and, you know, silly little things like that. And so Mm. I can, I can see that this is an exciting part of the market, but to a certain extent, you're right. We've refined smartphones to the form they are at the moment well that's it for this week's show hope you've enjoyed the episode if you get a moment can you please give us a five-star rating on the podcast platform you're listening on it really will help raise our profile and let others know you like us too until next time pip pip ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.